Good evening. Glad everybody's back tonight. I'm going to have to do this off my laptop because my printer, so my printer's been messed up, so I thought, okay, I'll just go buy a new one. So last night, I went and bought a new printer. Went to Walmart, got it. This afternoon, got home, went to put a ball back to get it. It wants Windows 10. So, yeah, we'll just read it off the screen for now. So, but uh, really, I'm glad, like I said, everybody's here tonight. Uh, one thing I'm particularly happy about is that we've returned to uh, having Sunday night service. We really, really miss that. Um, strange times. It really is. It's different. 2020, was kind of joking with somebody the other day, and I, I know I've heard others say it, and that's, you know, 2021 can't get here quick enough because this just seems to have been a messed up year. There just seems like everything just unreal. But uh, really, I'm glad we're here again on Sunday nights. Uh, totally understand why, you know, why we had to stop this COVID, you know, it's real. I think everybody in here probably knows, at least remotely, somebody they've had acquaintance with, you know, that's passed away or had it, you know, because and gotten sick from it. So we want to be careful. I always tell everybody I'm not paranoid, but I'm going to be careful. Definitely. I've got suppressed immune system, just like I know a lot of people in here do. And you go into Walmart and somebody's coughing, you know. So, you know, again, don't need to be paranoid, but we do need to be cautious. Um, I want to start off with a, tonight, the name of the sermon is The Foolishness of the Cross. And I wanted to put title it that everybody plays the fool, but that's the title of a song. I didn't really want that song that was from the early 70s, 1972. Um, that one was about people in love making stupid decisions. But there is a definite, and Paul preached on it and wrote about it, about the foolishness of the cross. People can be overcome by several factors, which at times will make us make foolish decisions, such as vanity. Vanity has been described as having an inflated opinion of oneself. And I'm sure probably everybody knows at least one or a couple of people that way. Or maybe a personality that is empty or value, valueless. Um, some that people, they pride, have pride, in, excessive pride in themselves, but yet they could care less about the rest of the world. Some say next to money, vanity is the second major evil in the world. And vanity has made people throughout history make some very foolish decisions. One famous example, and I, I didn't have any problem coming up with some of my own, but I didn't want to use those, so we picked one out of history. But a person that was in, in, infected with the flaw of vanity, and that was General Armstrong Custer. Now history has recorded that General Armstrong Custer's demise on June 25th, 1876 at Little Bighorn was attributed to his own personal vanity. Most of the historical accounts of Custer leave out the fact 
that he was a West Point graduate. Noted, he graduated last in his class, but still a West Point graduate. Also usually left out is the fact that just after a few years after graduation from West Point, Custer was promoted to Brigadier General during the Civil War. And just three days after that promotion, he led a decisive victory in the Battle of Gettysburg against the famous General Jeb Stuart. But what Custer is remembered for is his vanity, his foolish decisions, and his demise while leading the 7th Cavalry at the Little Bighorn on June 25, 1876. General Custer's actions that, that led up to his defeat and demise at the Little Bighorn are attributed to his own personal vanity and several crucial decisions which history records as foolish decisions. Decisions like ignoring his own scouts' reports, that he was facing an enemy greater than 2,500, when his own force was barely 600, which he turned around and divided into three so that he could have two flanking forces and he commanded the center force with 210 men. Custer also made a previous decision to leave behind the single weapon which probably could have changed the outcome of that battle. He had decided not to bring along several Gatlin guns which were suggested that he take. His explanation at the time was that they would slow him down. Others had recorded over history that Custer didn't want to use them because it might make his victory less of a victory because of such a, such a weapon. Custer also ignored orders that were given to him previous, I mean, for his mission, and that was to avoid conflict if at all possible. So these foolish decisions led to the death of all 210 men and the cost of General Custer his life. But being foolish, it's normally considered a bad thing, but tonight I want us to look at how being foolish can be a good thing. Our text tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 31. I'll be reading from the New King, New King James Version. Starting off at verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of, the, of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it was written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We back back up to the beginning of that. We read in verse 18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's consider this, the, law, the lost, the message of the cross to be foolishness. While we as Christians see the message of the cross as the power of God, that the message of the cross is our salvation. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 19 by quote, quoting Isaiah 29:14. The fool, Isaiah 29:14 says, "Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent men shall be hidden." Seems to have a lot better context written when read. In the, like I said, in the full context written in Isaiah. But now <clears throat> Isaiah is writing of God's judgment upon Israel and a promise of a promise of better things to happen in succeeding times. Isaiah is also telling Israel that God will, will again do a marvelous work among his people. A marvelous work and wonder, saying that for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Paul is reminding the church at Corinth what Isaiah had written and prophesied to the children of Israel. Not to get us too far ahead of myself here, but Paul was writing to the church at Corinth in this first letter to them because he had told them that there was there there was a problem there so he starts out by pleading with them in verse verse 10 of chapter 1 that they all speak the same thing and that there should be no divisions among them but that they should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment he continues in verse 11 by saying that he was told by those of Chloe's household that there were contentions among them. Continues in verse 12, Paul continues by repeating what he has heard about them, that, there, that some were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. But Paul admonishes them in verses 13, 14, and 15 by saying, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Now in verse 16, Paul continues. I jumped way too far ahead. He continues by saying, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any others. 17, Paul brings it all together by saying, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul wouldn't mention any words. See, the church of Corinth was suffering from that vanity and pride. The vanity and pride of the world was causing them to start arguing amongst themselves, which led to having divisions between them. Because of this worldly vanity and pride, they were arguing over who was better, what was better, those baptized by Paul or those baptized by Apollos, or maybe even those who were baptized by Cephas. They were even arguing about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that, that which ones were best. Now, a little later in chapter 3, Paul scolds them by telling them that they were just like babies who has to have to start off by being fed with milk, who, a baby who isn't even mature enough for solid food, that they were like a baby because they were still being worldly instead of being in Christ that they were trying to justify and define the gospel with the knowledge of the world. And Paul used book chapter verse by quoting the prophecy of, prophecy of Isaiah to them and ex explaining that God was fulfilling what he had already promised to them. Kind of get back on track, back to our text. If we start back up where we left off at verse 20, We'll continue to verse 25. It says, starting with verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's a lot there in those five verses. Which, this is a great example of why he had to write, why Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.16 that some of Paul's writings are a little hard to understand. I love this verse because at times I have problems really understanding what Paul means. But in... But he wrote that in verses 23 through 25. And we'll see Paul is actually explaining what he wrote in verses 20 through 22. I messed that up a little bit. 
when we look at in 1 Corinthians what Paul wrote. So let's look at, at verse 22. The Jews request a sign, and the Greek seeks after wisdom. So working backwards, Paul states that the Greeks seek after wisdom. Back in this time period, the Greeks, they were the pinnacle of knowledge in the world. They prided themselves in attaining knowledge, or at least in their own opinion. Probably, if you were to ask a Greek at that time who the smartest people in the world were, they would probably say the Greeks. The Greeks at this time period prided themselves with their, with their Greek philosophers and their Greek mythology. They even prided themselves that they had the greatest philosophers who pretty much did nothing but sit around and think all day. And if somebody wanted to pay me for that, I could be great too. But also, during this period of time within the Jewish people, there were two major divisions. And everybody knows the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But the Sadducees were composed more of the elite, upper class part of the Jews. The Sadducees were like the aristocrats of the day and tended to be richer and held more influence and power and powerful positions like the chief priests and the high priestly positions. They also held a majority of the 70 member council of the Sanhedrin, but held less power and opinion than, but held the Sanhedrin, but held less power than the Pharisees in actuality because the Pharisees held the power of the people. Despite having the majority, the Pharisees they they did not they had the minority, excuse me, and the Sanhedrin. And the Sadducees held the majority. But even though they had the minority, the Pharisees were held in a highest regard by the Jewish people and the people in general. And it was a source of great contention between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Interestingly though, Sadducees didn't believe in such things as angels, demons, the resurrection and afterlife, and pretty much thought just like the soul was non-existent at the, you know, at the time after death kind of like Robert Ned all over. The Sadducees were, were more of a political group than a religious group. Now the Pharisees, they were different. The Pharisees, by some, by several, were called the party of the scribes, as m most of the scribes of the time were Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees also were comprised more of regular or middle class people of the time. And again, most of the scribes, like I said, were of the Pharisee sect. But the opposite of that's not true. Not all Pharisees were scribes. Because of this, within the Jewish people, the Pharisees commanded the hearts and souls and support of the common man. They commanded a lot of power because the multitudes were more likely 
to associate with the Pharisees. There's not much written about when the Pharisees actually became into existence. From There's a lot of opinion, but not fact. But when the historical write, from historical writings, we can know that they came into existence somewhere around 160 to 170 BC. And this time period is known for the Maccabean re Revolt. Israel had come under severe persecution during this time, and they were even ordered by, to worship the Greek god Zeus. And everything came to a head in, in 167 BC when there was a pig sacrificed to Zeus inside the temple in Jerusalem. So this started this, this revolt, which was led by a Jewish priest. But to understand the Pharisee, we'd have to understand what motivated them to come into existence. During this time period, there were some of the Jews who felt that their being in captivity and their persecution was due to people not keeping God's commandments, which they were correct for the most part. So they went about, with the help of the scribes at the time, to write down all the commandments which they were to follow. Then they insisted that all the Jews follow these rules and these commandments which isn't a bad idea, but as with any good idea, somebody goes too far and it turns into a bad thing. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And I'm paraphrasing there. Over time, they got the idea that if they were to obey all the laws that God set for them, what would happen if somebody slipped up just a little? If they started living just outside in that fringe? So their idea was to build a fence around God's laws. So they made God's laws and defined them in their own terms and enforced them and made them stricter. Basically, they started making their own laws. Their motives were good on the surface. They wanted to be sure that the people stayed within the law, that if someone accidentally slipped up or whatever, that they would fall inside this fence they had created and keep them from violating God's law. But again, over time, the Pharisees became the police to enforce their law over the Jews. And because they had such control over the people, the Romans saw this kind of as, as a benefit. If the Pharisees kept the people in line and provided fewer headaches for the Romans, then the Roman rulers were content to give them some of the power so that they could keep peace. So, it's just like the old saying, power corrupts, and that held true. The more power they gained over the people, the more corrupt they themselves became. Now, to add to this some worldly vanity and pride, it makes it easier to understand why when Jesus started to confront them, that the Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat and as a troublemaker instead of seeing him as their savior. But likewise, Jesus knew their vanity and pride in it had infected the Pharisees and that they had left the will of God and were now only serving their own worldly vanity and pride. 
In Matthew chapter 23, we see where Jesus basically puts the Pharisees in their place, and he does it pretty harshly. In Matthew 23, starting at verse 13 and going through verse 30, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you to devour, devour widows and houses and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to wine one proselyte. And when, you, when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne. The throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat, but yet swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you you cleanse the outside of a cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophet, build the tombs of the prophets, and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So here in these verses the Pharisees pretty well get lined out. And basically is told the truth just like it is. Because of their worldly pride and vanity, they had forgotten God's word. And what was prophesied as the coming Savior and could not imagine that the Son of God, the coming Christ, would be born in a manger. 
that he would have such a lowly birth. Instead of looking for a savior, they were looking for an earthly king, an earthly king to come and destroy the Romans and to reinstate the Jewish people to their former worldly power. They were looking for revenge, that the coming savior, the coming king would flip the tables and that the Jews would become rulers over the Romans. Again, it was that worldly vanity and pride that made them totally overlook the prophecy of the coming Christ and the Savior. And that's exactly what Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians. That the gospel, that the coming Savior wasn't what they had come to expect. Instead of trusting the scripture, they had come to believe their own rules and their own made-up beliefs. That the whole idea of a coming Christ was crucified on the cross would be simple, simply foolishness. You know, the scribes, and this always, I never could understand it. The scribes knew because they wrote and copied. They made all the copies. So they knew what scripture said. So if the Pharisees went and wrote everything down as to what they had to do to obey, again, that wasn't a bad idea. It would have contained them within that part, within, that, within those laws. But instead, they let power, vanity, pride, corruption. I just never understood. Like I said, probably started out as a good idea. The Jews, they couldn't accept the idea of an innocent man dying on the cross to save the guilty. The idea that Jesus, he had a way out, but he didn't take it. Because, and that made no sense to them. The idea that Jesus had the power to destroy all his captors. He could call 10,000 angels. But instead, willingly went to the cross that this was simply foolishness to them. That Jesus simply surrendered to his captors without a fight when he had all the power to destroy them they could not believe that that could just be real that the Christ that coming savior suffered on the cross when ultimate pleasure and ultimate comfort was at his fingertips Again, this was beyond their comprehension. The idea that Jesus, Jesus had the power to do miracles and yet submitted to the crucifixion. Again, this was foolishness to them. That Jesus stood silent and provided no real defense at his trial 
when he could have commanded the voice of God on high to defend him. Again, this made no sense to them. The foolishness of thinking that Jesus would willingly leave the comfort of heaven, but yet come to this earth and suffer, and suffer on that bitter tree, again, was beyond their comprehension. Their own vanity, their own pride wouldn't allow them to believe that the Christ, the coming Savior, would simply allow himself to be pushed around, to be persecuted, and ultimately crucified. All for the salvation of sinful mankind. The ultimate foolishness, foolish thought the Jews was that this, their Savior, the Christ they had been looking for, would freely offer total forgiveness to, to mankind, to a sinful man. This is the foolishness of the cross that Paul is writing about to the church at Corinth. You know, we could go over and over and on and on. But this is the foolishness of the cross that just didn't make sense to the Jews and doesn't make sense to a lot of people today. That rational thought would say that this simply does not make sense to them. You know, when Paul, another one of my favorites, when Paul's given his defense to Festus in the book of Acts chapter 26, Paul tells the story of Jesus and the death of, of the, on the cross. He tells this, and Festus interrupts Paul in verse 24 and basically tells Paul that he's insane to think that the coming king of the Jews would suffer and die on the cross. Acts 26, 24, where he interrupts him, he says, now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Even Festus, who had heard it, thought it was total foolishness. You know, the story of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, the good news of a coming Savior who would save us from sin, born in a manger, persecuted by his fellow Jews, put on trial, and convicted, then crucified. That his shed blood would be our saving grace. Finish this out. We pick back up at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This last part says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world but to, to, to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I know several times when I would read Paul's letters to the church of Corinth, especially the, this first letter, tended to skim through the first couple of chapters and not fully grasp the full context of what would, you know, Paul was saying here. Which, it's sometimes it, it's hard for people, for some people to do, because it's something that you've read hundred, few hundred, several, maybe a few thousand times. I grew up in the church, and sometimes I have to force myself to go back and reread the Bible with an open mind as though I were someone who had never heard God's word or read it before. Kind of story that goes along with that. So I was in an online uh, study group once and was discussing a, a point, specific point with someone who definitely was probably smarter than me and he was just having a hard time getting me to understand it because I pretty much had a preconceived idea from over, my, over the years. Then he sent me an email and it simply asking me if I was a Buick, like the car, B-U-I-C-K. I was, Buick? Yeah, brought up in the church, kid. B-U-I-C-K. So sometimes that, that affects our vision on things or how we perceive things. But the point, that point, that's exactly what he, the point he was trying to make, that we need to read as though we've read it for the first time and see it the way that the scripture is intended to be seen. Not to cloud it with our preconceived ideas of what might be, we might think is foolish. I want to make one last point, and the lesson will be yours. Need to look one. Just take a look at uh, the book of Acts, chapter two. I know everybody knows Acts two thirty-eight, but I want to read from Acts, starting at verse thirty-six. <clears throat> and I, I bring this up here at the end because this is how it was presented to somebody that had never been presented to before. How that first-century Jew felt when he heard the message of Christ for the first time. Starting in verse 36 of Acts 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When I read that, there was, I imagine there was probably no hesitation between what shall we do? Men, you know, after they heard it, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. 
And that's kind of the message tonight. What shall we do? You know, as always, we want to make sure we extend an offer of invitation to anyone that has need of the church, prayers of the church. Um, maybe you haven't always had an open heart. Or maybe you've gotten caught up in that vanity and pride of mankind and, and seen the message of the gospel. You know, maybe you've not seen it the way God intended it. You just, we just want you to know that we're always here with open arms to help you with that. Or maybe someone's decided to accept Jesus in their heart and desires to be baptized into God. And again, we want to make sure that you know that not just now, but that any time, that the doors are open, the phone's just a phone call away, that's always available. We don't send that, op that invitation as we stand.